Richard, thank you very much. That's pertinent for us because as we start looking at you know, where the future of procurement's going, then actually what Paul and I are now going to focus on is actually some of the historical issues we can learn from case law relating to procurement processes and with our legal hats on, and that's what we are as lawyers, with our legal hats on thinking about the issues that risks which arise in any procurement process, regardless of if it's something a little bit more traditional or starting to deal with new suppliers. So I was practicing, Paul and I were practicing this morning, I'd love to pretend I read the FT on the way to work, but it was the Metro. Um, Paul and I were practicing on the way, and we came out of the room and I'd had a lovely spiel ready to go. I actually had a Sherlock Holmes impersonation to do with the curious incident at the dog in the night time. Uh, when someone pointed out, Richard walked past and said, have you seen the front page of the FT? Because we're talking about BSCARB and, uh, uh, and EDS, and actually buried in the corner of the front page of the, S, uh, the FT, it notes that they've full and finally settled Good job the lawyers get some wording in there. Fulham finally settled litigation at £318 million. So there are elements of these slides which are slightly out of date, but forgive us because it's about 12 hours old, the news, I think. So what did we want to talk about today? Well, we want to talk about procurement processes as have been affected by B, Sky B and EDS case because it's an absolutely fundamental case within IT procurement. What we would love to do is spend an awfully long time talking to you about the case. Actually, it's going to have to be a little bit of a quick run through. 25 minutes is what we've, we've got allocated to it. So we're going to focus on representations and the effects of some of the contractual documentation on the representations. There's some other really interesting stuff in this case, things like materiality thresholds relating to breach, uh, repudiation, which, you know, happy to talk about at another time. We've talked about previously some stuff on the website, but we can't go into all of that detail today. We're going to focus on representation claims and the contractual construction issues relating from a prime contract, letters of intent, MOU, settlement letters, and really what effects that has on how people are buying or selling IT services, or any services really, but IT services in particular. And we're going to focus and use this case um, because, well, it's the UK's most expensive IT legal dispute. I think legal costs were running at the turn of the year at about £80 million. It was for a pretty astronomical £700 million claim against a total contract value of £54 million. It took 109 days in court. It took six years for the case to be concluded. Um, the judgment itself <coughs> is a fantastic war and peace-like effort, and that's two per page there of 468 pages. Um, there were still elements of the judgment outstanding. Now, unfortunately... Uh, they probably won't happen now, which is a real shame, actually, because one of the elements for the lawyers in the room was relating to set-off and limitation of liability clause. It's a bit of a shame we're not going to get some high court judgment on that. But um, the interim damages award was of over £200 million. As I said, they've now settled at £318 million as a full and final settlement. HP announced they plan to appeal. Hmm, okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> the, a bit more about the background and the facts, and it's a, it's a complex case um, which we will sort of skirt around a little bit about the background and the facts now, just to give a bit of flavour to it. Uh, EDS were bought by HP in 2008, I'm sure we're pretty sure about that. Had a contract with B Sky B, and we'll look at what B Sky B means in a minute. They, it was a contract for a customer relationship management system, uh, baseline budget of about £47 million, was to go live by 31st of July 2001. Actually, it cost £265 million, so an extra £220 million, and it went live finally, kind of in part, six years later. So it, there was an awful lot went, there, went wrong between what they wanted and where they got to. Uh, an awful lot of me also says, there but for the grace of God go I, because I think we've all seen a lot of IT projects where slippage maybe isn't an exact stream, but it's, a, but it's not an unknown occurrence. Um, so Sky, having finally got fed up, 
uh, claim for breach of contract and misrepresentation, including fraud, and that's obviously an important element of their claim, and that's where our focus is today. About the players, and again, really sorry for whizzing through this. All this information's in your packs, but we're talking about Sky. There's two real key Sky entities we're talking about, B-Sky-B, British Sky Broadcasting Limited, the operating company in the UK and Ireland uh, providing satellite TV services, uh, wholly owned by the LSE-listed group PLC, and then SSSL Limited, who ran a lot of the uh, ancillary functions for Sky. If you've got your Skybox and your Sky TV channel, that's who you're probably who your contract is with, actually, if you look at the small print. By EDES, who do we mean? Well, we now mean HP, actually, but what we meant at the time was e Electronic Data Systems Limited, EDSL, and they were the UK entity who were providing the services, and EDSC, who were the US parent company, provided a parent company guarantee under the prime contract, who were involved, as we will see, in some of the tender documentation. <coughs> who else does this involve? Well, it involves, and this is where we would have read some of this, I'm pretty sure it made the national press, that's how exciting IT got for that brief moment. It involves <laughs> Joe Galloway, who, it is a fascinating judgment to read. The first 40, 50 pages about him is fantastic. So he was the bid lead for EDS. Uh, he was in charge of their EMEA operation for the establishment of CRM systems. Um, what else do we think about him? Well, he, uh, he was the MD of this line of business which was selling in. He had actually left EDS but was consulting, had come back in, was helping with their consultancy process. The key things really are he's pretty senior. He's kind of got overall charge for this bidding process. The other key things are that actually he was pretty discredited uh, on the witness stand. So much so that the judge said, I'm actually not going to believe anything you've told me uh, unless it's corroborated by external other evidence. Uh, and there's some interesting stories about him or, you know, kind of joking about having taken people out for fights in car parks. But what the most famous story which came out of the case was the fact that he claimed to have an MBA from Concordia University. Gave long stories about how he'd spent two years there, had travelled between islands, etc., and came away with this MBA. Now, as a good QC, Sky's QC said, actually, that's interesting. Did you honestly go there? Yes, absolutely, on oath I went there, had this MBA. The QC then turned around and said, well, that's funny because I've got the same MBA for my dog, Lulu. Uh, and there's a picture of the, uh, the, uh, the websites. And, for, and he said, for, for $699, here's the MBA that you're saying you've got. And by the way, all these things you said factually are not true. And by the way, my dog got a better mark than you. <laughs> <laughs> which, it, which it did. <laughs> Even worse for the diploma mill business is actually this MBA now only costs $549. So that's, it's affected their business as well. Proper ramifications. So... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I digress. A bit of timeline. Again, it is quite important for this case about the timeline. Let's just pick a few pertinent points out. Sky, at the beginning of February 2000, say we, we want a CRM system. They're, they're telling the, they're telling the, um, the markets they're going to get a CRM system. Issues an ITT. EDS respond to the ITT by June. In it, they say some things which, again, the lawyers in the room said that never had legal review. We will provide you a unique world-class customer contact center. World-class. On time and on budget. Um, so that was part of their ITT responses. Sky down selected, said we're going to go with UEDS and use Arthur Anderson as a subcontractor. Because they wanted to get going very quickly and begin services, there was a letter of intent entered into between B Sky B and EDSL by August 2000 so that they could start providing services and work towards a prime contract. That prime contract was entered into. On the 30th November 2000, between SSSL, not B-Sky-B, but SSSL and EDSL, it had a £47 million baseline um, uh, and was talking about implementing services within the timescales talked about within the letter of intent. So things starting to appear by April. Things go wrong pretty quickly. So a deed of uh, guarantee was provided by a US corporation, the EDSC Corp. 
by the 16th of July, so only eight months later, they're varying the prime contract already. And what they're saying is actually, mm, we'll have to amend the services and what we're talking about doing. Um, and actually, as part of that, uh, EDS said, well, we'll enter into a settlement letter about full and final settlement about claims up until that point. Uh, pretty soon after that, so only another nine, mar nine months after that, Sky having to take over the system integrator role. Um, and then there's another attempt to have uh, a settlement about um, moving forward and rescoping the project in the 26th of March, 02, without prejudice and subject to contract. That's slightly interesting for us lawyers as well, and we'll come back to, to those words there. So within quite a short period of time, within a LOI signed here, which says we're going to get something in place in nine months for £47 million, to this point here where they've already spent £58 million and they're already well over delayed, we then see significant budget, uh, significant timescale slippages going on until actually Sky gets so fed up that in August 2004, they're issuing proceedings in the High Court. Trial commences in 2007, trial ends in 2008. We get judgment finally by the hardworking judge 18 months later. And then obviously, yeah, yesterday evening, obviously, there was some form of settlement rates for, raised, uh, reached for £318 million. Pounds. Thanks, Andrew. As you can see, Andrew's taken all the fun bits. I'm afraid we've got the law now. Um, first up, we're talking about pre-contract representations and misrepresentations made in two, two distinct phases, before the letter of intent and before the contract was entered, and then subsequently um, prior to when the settlement agreement was entered into. What is a misrepresentation? It's an untrue statement, a uh, false statement made by a party to another party which induces that party to enter into a contract and which causes it to suffer a loss. Which leads us on to what is a representation. Just to remind ourselves, it's a statement of fact, normally past or present, uh, something that is definitely true. It can also be a statement of opinion to the extent that that adduces the person who's making that statement of opinion believes a certain set of facts or should be aware of a certain set of facts. So, for example, if I were to say Kemp Little had about 60 employees, because I'm a partner at Kemp Little and worked there, you would imagine I had reasonable grounds for making that statement of belief. It's not a promise. A promise is generally something that is made about something that's going to happen in the future. That would normally become part of the contract and then it would become a contractual breach as to whether or not we delivered it. <coughs> so given that, we're now talking about three different types of misrepresentation that were alleged. First of all, innocent. Effectively, where a misrepresentation has been made, but essentially speaking, there's reasonable grounds for its belief. Not particularly relevant in this case. Then negligent and fraudulent misrep. I think we need to think about different case, different means of bringing the actions because it's relevant to what happened later. Effectively, we have the law of negligent misstatement, a tortious claim. Um, in this case, therefore, for example, all of the parties, the head codes that Andrew was talking about on the previous slides, were able to bring claims against each other outside of contract under negligent misstatement. What do we need for negligent misstatement? Well, like all torts, we need to prove effectively there was a duty of care. How do we decide whether there's a duty of, of care? Again, to remind us all, the Caparo test. The damage was foreseeable. A relationship of proximity or neighbourhood between the parties existed. And it was fair, just and reasonable in all of the circumstances to impose that duty. It was breached. There was a loss. We can limit claims, provided we get the drafting right in the contract, for these types of claims. Then we come back to the Misrepresentation Act. The difference here being that only the two parties to the contract could bring a claim underneath the Misrepresentation Act. There are some advantages to it. The burden of proof is easier for the person try alleging the claim. Effectively, Sky had to prove EDS made a representation. It was a misrep. 
the EDS made the statement carelessly or without reasonable grounds for believing it. And importantly, the burden of proof would be on EDS to prove that it had, taken, it had reasonable knowledge of all the facts surrounding and actually it was a fair statement in the circumstances, in which case it would be an innocent misrep. And that EDS intended Sky to act in reliance and EDS, in fact, and Sky did, in fact, in, act in reliance. And then lastly, fraudulent representation, misrepresentation. <coughs> Effectively the same thing, but the burden of proof is much higher. The false statement must either be made knowingly or recklessly uh, as to whether it was true. And liability, importantly, for this cannot be limited. So now we've gone through the basic summary. I'll just give you an outline of the misrepresentations involved. Essentially speaking, we have five basic misrepresentations. EDS must have had, in Sky's belief, enough resources to deliver the project to the timescales it promised in the LOI and in the contract. Otherwise, why would it have said those assertions? Why would it have agreed to that? We have a cost estimate. It gave a cost um, estimate. How did it arrive at that? Surely it must have had reasonable grounds for belief. As Andrew pointed out in the slide earlier, we ended up with a cost of five times their estimate, which would suggest they'd gone wrong at some point in their estimation process. Thirdly, it had an ability to meet timescales. It was a very clear from the initial um, ITT that, essentially speaking, Sky needed to have this project delivered within nine months. It had announced it to the market before it had even gone to the bid process. It was essential it went through it as fast as possible, and EDS were made aware of that. They didn't deliver on time. It was five years out. Therefore, again, claim of misrep. Use of proven technology. This is an interesting one, which we're not going to go into detail today. But essentially speaking, Sky claimed that they believed that EDS had proven technology which would interlink and work together with each other. Um, EDS actually said, no, we don't. We have separate bits of technology that work really well, but we don't know if they work together. And we'll find that out as the process goes through. And then the methodologies to be used. And the ITT, EDS, actually labeled a couple of types of methodologies that it might use. Sky was saying that it would use them, and it had said that it would use them, and in fact it later proved it wasn't able to use them because it didn't have access to some of these methodologies. We'll come to the details in a minute. So therefore, where do the misrepresentations arise? This is a very interesting fact, and it's quite surprising perhaps in context of modern procurement methods. But based on written documents which were part of the procurement process, an ITT response, bid presentations, etc. However, an awful lot of fights in car parks, uh, discussions over phones, discussions in meeting rooms, emails between the parties, and internal evidence which showed what, SCAR, what EDS was actually thinking and what it was telling the customer at a particular time. So before we get onto the details, what were the basic claims? Sky basically was saying that misrepresentations were made by parties who weren't even part of the contract. The head co uh, of EDS, EDSC, made representations, it was involved in the bidding process, it was a name was on some of the paperwork involved, and also B-Sky-B. B-Sky-B um, essentially was asking for the services to be delivered to it. It didn't name the entity that was going to be receiving the services. So essentially, misrep claims outside of contract via tort unlimited. In any event, they claimed that the construction of the entire agreement clause did not exclude liability for misrep claims, whether innocent, negligent, or fraudulent. However, all of the allegations they listed, they said were fraudulent in any event. They didn't need to know whether they're negligent. They would be outside the cap. And then, of course, they looked at all of the drafting of the contract and tried to pick holes in it. EDS's case in the alternative was that it had agreed a contract with a particular um, B-Sky-B entity. Why would they have entered into that contract unless the two parties who are party to the contract wanted to deal with each other? Secondly, they denied that most of the representations had made. They admitted a small number, but in every event denied fraud. 
Also, they claim that the entire agreement clause worked and as such representations were not part of the contract. And further to that, there was a settlement agreement which settled any and all claims arising prior to the date. They claim that this excluded the claims. So the issues to be determined by the court in the, event, in the end were essentially what was the effect of the contract documentation on any of the pre-contract representations? Were they excluded? And were claims allowed against parties outside of the contract? Secondly, had any pre-contract representations been made? And if so, were they innocent, negligent, or fraudulent, and what damages would result? So I think that's where it gets interesting for us as a room talking about procurement practices, because we've got, on one hand, Paul is talking, and he will come back to the issue of representations which are made during the procurement process and the effect of, and I'm going to now talk about the effect of contractual documentation on those representations, and then there's the whole aspect of um, a fraudulent misrepresentation and what that led to in terms of claims. So in terms of the construction of the contracts, we've got some issues relating to representations that have been made. How did the contractual documents during the procurement process affect those representations? Well, there were three kind of key documents they were the court looked at. One was the prime contract entered into in November 2000 that contained an entire agreement clause. EDS said, actually, because of that entire agreement clause, any liability for pre-contract representations had disappeared. Uh, it also contained a liability clause which excluded a large amount of sort of indirect and direct losses, especially related to anticipated savings, which was key in terms of the quantum of damages. There was a settlement letter when things had started to go wrong, which had a full and final settlement language, and then an MOU which tried to vary things again. Now, each of those, EDS was saying, actually affected the representations we gave and then stopped you, Sky, being able to rely on them and claim against them. So this is where, for lawyers, it gives us some drafting, actually, some good drafting tips. Now, the law's not changed. I can't stand here and say it's all particularly radical or different, and actually it's pretty basic, but sometimes it's very useful for us to know, actually, what we think we know is absolutely proved right by a high court judge. So the entire agreement clause talks about this being the entire agreement between the parties and understanding in relation to and superseding any previous representations. And that's the key thing, really. Supersedes any previous representations. In Sky's case, as EDS has said, well, there we are. That's, talk, that's saying that that is absolutely getting rid of any pre-contract representations is, and excluding any liability for them. And Sky just said, no, that's not. It just means that pre-contract representations didn't form part of the contract uh, in the sense that if they were superseded, it didn't exclude the liability for any of the misrepresentations went to, uh, which went along them. And, of course, they pulled up the case of Canada Steamship, which we're all pretty familiar with, within our liability clauses probably more often which just said if you're excluding liability for negligence, you've got to be very, very explicit about it. And Ramsey agreed with them and said, yeah, absolutely, to be honest with you. The effect of this is about superseding representations. It's not about wiping liability away. He compared it to the Freightliner case in 2005, and they were looking there at a clause which had the entire agreement clause which said none of the parties has relied or, or is relying on any other information, discussion, or understanding. And this, the text is all on the screen for us here. But there he said very explicitly, there's a if there's a contractual renunciation on any reliance, it's gone, a, it's gone a whole step further than the entire agreement clause you had in place because it's saying you do not rely on anything we have said prior to this point. Uh, and again, just to come back to some really classic case law for us as well, in any event, if you were looking to exclude liability for those kind of pre-contractual representations and misrepresentations, then to quote Thomas Witter, you must not be mealy-mouthed about it. You have to be very explicit, very clear. You can't bury it with an entire agreement clause because contra preferentum is going to be probably um, uh, understood against you. So takeaways really from the entire agreement clause is if we're going to look 
to make sure we're using it as a way of excluding liability, we have to be very clear about it. And non-reliance language, not just superseding language, is absolutely essential, but not the best place to be doing it. What else can we take away from the contractual documents during the procurement process? Well, the settlement letter. So by July 2001, things not going well. Let's renegotiate the contract. Different price, different scope. Fine, let's put in a full and final settlement language. We've all seen it before. Again, there it is in your packs, in full and final settlement of all known claims, blah, 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 for any breach of the prime contract. So EDS said, well, there we go. There we have, by July 2001, we've decided to wipe the slate clean. Everything that's come before then has wiped the slate clean because we've said so in this full and final settlement language. And again, Ramsey said, well, really? Sky didn't quite agree with you there. And actually, if I look at the case law, BCCI and Ali, Again, the text from that case on the screen, in your packs. In that case, there was a uh, settlement language that's talked about in full and final settlement of all and any claims, whether under statute, common law, or equity. And so that's far broader than the for any breach of the prime contract you've put in place within this clause. And actually, even under that clause, I don't think it's specific enough to give it the protection and to give the, the full wipe the slate clean that the parties are looking for. So he's definitely not going to find it on the facts in this case. So he said no. The intention of the settlement, uh, the settlement letter and the language used in the settlement letter related to breaches of the prime contract. And of course, what we're talking about now is misrepresentation claims which occurred during the procurement process. Therefore, this doesn't wipe away all of the claims related there. What else can we take from the language? Well, this is a good one, I always think, because it's kind of, well, it's kind of the drafting I sometimes use myself, I suppose. There was within, uh, Sky were claiming a lot of things as part of their concept for damages, but the, one of the biggest ones was something called call rate reduction. By implementing your CRM system, we're going to have a load less people over the next 15 years calling our help desk, we're going to save a ton of money. And therefore, they wanted to be able to claim call rate reduction, which was basically an anticipated saving from the agreement. EDS said, well, you can't claim that. So for, for breach of contract claims, you're not going to be able to claim that from us. You might be able to outside of the contract, but not for breach of contract, because the exclusion of gloss clause says neither party shall have any liability for any consequential or indirect loss, loss of profits, revenue, business, goodwill. And it's used, split up using the punctuation on the screen. So as I said, Sky were claiming this call rate reduction um, and saying this anticipated saving is something we should be able to recover. Ramsey said not, absolutely not at all. And I think that's, that's a fairly obvious conclusion we would all reach from looking at the wording. Um, it says you will not have any liability for consequential or indirect losses. But also it says you won't have any liabilities on a direct or indirect basis for loss of profits, revenue, business, goodwill, and or anticipated savings. Call rate reduction is an anticipated saving. You're looking to claim it as a direct loss. It is excluded by this clause under contract, so you cannot recover it. As I said, nothing particularly special there other than it's good to know a high court judge agrees that that's where that wording's taken us. One of the very quick points, which is, some, which is part of a procurement process because it's used all the time, a bit even further later on, two years into the project, there was an MOU where the parties were really trying to solve, well, actually, what's going to happen now? Um, part of the thing, really, the detail of the MOU is irrelevant. The key thing about the MOU is it's headed without prejudice and subject to contract. Now, there were some elements of it that EDS wanted included uh, as actually a contractual relationship because it was useful to their case. They said, well, actually, it might have said subject to contract at the top. That wasn't the intention for this part and this part. Judge said, no chance. It says subject to contract at the top of a couple of the pages. It is clear the whole thing is subject to contract, not meant to be legally binding. One other very, very quick point, just in relation to the contracting party entities. You'd have noticed earlier, I'll just brush over this. Uh, EDS, we're using EDS, meaning EDSL and EDS Corporation in the US, etc. There was some discussion about does that mean the US Corporation, forgetting the parent company guarantee, 
has some liability to Sky and B, Sky B. Generally, the conclusion was a sensible one. It's the judge saying, look, all big businesses use logos. Doesn't mean we're binding the US company just because you're dealing, you know, just because their name might appear in the ITC documentation. There's some greater facts in that, but I'm conscious of time, actually. So I might just let you answer Mr. T's question. Thanks, Toby. Um, I'm going to focus on the representations as to cost, timescales, and resources, which, as you'd imagine, are all tied in together prior to the actual contract stage. It's where the key things happened. Sky's position is written on the board is essentially that for EDS to have made the bid, to have signed the contract, to have signed the letter of intent, they must have considered how much resources, time, and costs it would take and done reasonable, in accordance with industry practice, estimations of what these would be before they were able to sign up to an agreement and that EDS had manifestly failed to do so. The key one I'm going to focus on is resources, first of all. <coughs> there are three separate representations here. Firstly, Sky alleged that there was a greater resources representation contained in the ITT response, in letters, at meetings, verbally, emails, etc. The essence of what Sky was saying was that EDS had promised um, it had the resources available, reserved, and set aside for the entire contract to be completed and ready. Secondly, uh, the lesser resources representation, essentially the EDS personnel could be made available as and when required, but were set aside and identified. And thirdly, a ready to start representation, as you can see from the letter here, we're ready to start this project of the 17th 07. Sky alleged that essentially speaking, it meant they had all of the resources ready to start. EDS countered this in a number of ways. Firstly, they said with regards to the greater global um, allegation, we don't have all of the resources ready for the entire project. We couldn't possibly have done. We didn't know the scope. We only had the initial plan ready, and we had identified the individuals ready to deliver the first eight weeks of the plan, working out what was to be done and by whom. However, we're very large companies. They're in partnership with Sun, Cordiant. Um, they had over 120,000 employees. They felt they had enough resources available within the business or without that they could have recruited to deliver the project. And as such, it was reasonable. Secondly, the lesser resources representation. They also felt they'd identified who they needed and what. So, for example, they didn't have any specialists in Cordiant. They'd found five Cordiant developers and had an agreement with Cordiant that Cordiant would supply people as and when needed. They hadn't identified all of the areas, but they'd appointed senior members of staff to identify who would be needed and when. And lastly, on the ready-to-start representation, they effectively said, well, we had enough people to start the project, and Ramsey found essentially they were right on all of these claims. The reason why is that they had actually made an effort at the stage of the project which in context of what an IT professional would expect to be done at this stage of a project was reasonable. Uh, they had no detailed scope of requirements. They had large organizations that could traditionally deal with this size of contract. They had no detailed planning in terms of specific numbers overall, but they had identified key individuals, key teams, key gaps. They had some internal memos which essentially said, it's, it's a very good read, I do recommend you have a look at it. They had some internal memos which identified skill gaps, but they had at least identified those skill gaps, which may be part of the process, and started to look for individuals to fill them. The experts broadly said, actually, this is all you could have expected them to do at this stage. Um, the definition of work was going to develop throughout, and they would have identified key teams as they went along. They also, and Ramsey very much liked the cone of uncertainty, which basically says as the project develops, you get to know more about what's going on. Um, not surprising, perhaps. Um, so essentially speaking, it wasn't a misrep. Again, if we look at the cost claims, and I'm conscious of time, um, very similar. The rationale they had for developing the cost claims was a top-down, bottom-up process. It was pretty thumb in the air, to be honest, but actually they looked at the expected level of resource insofar as they knew it. They tried to estimate how much project work was required in terms of 
particular high-level projects, and they've got experienced individuals to estimate based on previous experience, and also in terms of the number of customization involved and the number of individual pieces to be delivered, and did some approximate thumbs on the calculator. Also importantly, and there were change processes built into the contract, so that price was, was stated not to be necessarily fixed. It could flex up or downwards under the contract terms. Again, and perhaps surprisingly, Ramsey said, actually, that's reasonable in the context of where we were in the project. That's not a misrepresentation. However, very differently, EDS represented that in order to have said that they could have met this quite tight nine-month timescale, they must have assessed how long the project would take and have agreed that essentially they had a reasonable chance of making it on the basis of the facts available to them. There was no methodology in respect of this. EDS hadn't actually spent much time trying to calculate whether or not they could meet timescales. All they had done was a milestones document which had raised a number of questions internally. Therefore, EDS defended this very differently. They actually said, look, we didn't make that representation at all. There were caveats in our ITT response which said timescales change. Uh, there was subsequent change in the project scope, which meant the timescale wasn't originally meant to be nine months. It could easily have moved, depending on what was happening during the project. And actually, their commi commitments to timescales were not representations. EDS was essentially saying, yes, we'll do it in nine months, and accepting a contractual risk, which both parties would have been reasonably aware of. On the alternative, Ramsey J just threw that out completely and said, effectively, the ITT was clear on what the timescales were required. The representations were implicit by the fact that EDS agreed to them, and they were false. EDS had made no efforts to do any reasonable calculation of what the timescale should be. It's really important, again, as um, Andrew identified before, to Joe Galloway's role on this should not be dismissed. The, the judge really did not count any of his evidence as being valid unless it could be corroborated by someone else. And in this particular area, Joe Galloway sort of went off on a frolic of his own and very much committed himself to meeting those timescales and the business. There are internal risk notes and a red team review which clearly identify lots of members of the project team had problems with these timescales and didn't believe they could met. He never informed the client of these risks. At all times, whenever he was talking to Sky, he would tell them, we can meet this, we will do. And they signed up to contract terms which delivered nine months well after the fact his own internal teams doubted it. As we can see from the judgment, effectively, it was a fraudulent misrepresentation, not by the group as a whole, um, a whole group of people, but essentially Joe Galloway, the prime person responsible for the contract, had, on the facts, misrepresented that they could hit the timescales involved. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn it can be very expensive if you make a fraudulent misrepresentation, as of yesterday. Um, it's not a panacea for customers. I think, and I don't know, but I think, if you ask B-Sky B, would you have wanted your project delivered on time and to budget, or would you have rather have spent six years in court, had a five-year late delivery, and eventually managed to get a 318 million claim, I suspect they would rather have had it delivered on time. Also, both customers and suppliers need to be realistic and open during the process about what's required. Sky's requirements were simply, we need to be up and live in nine months. They said that in public before they'd actually started the procurement bid process. They had unreasonable expectations, perhaps, but also the supplier, when knowing that it was in trouble, didn't actually talk to Sky at an early stage. Um, are we gonna see a raft of new claims, as a lot of commentators are suggesting? I don't think so. Um, why? Well, the law hasn't changed, essentially, and if you look at the facts of the case, this was a serious fraudulent misrepresentation. It was obvious that it had been committed. Um, despite the, other, the interesting thing for suppliers is despite some quite vague calculations as to resources, costs, etc., those were upheld. They were reasonable in the context of what was happening at the time. Also, process, process, process. 
from a customer point of view, you should document which things you're relying on, when and why. You should make it very clear whether or not um, you should try and understand exactly why representations are being made to you. As a supplier, you must have reasonable grounds for making a response in the ITT, and you must document as much as you can how you've calculated, how you've come to those uh, conclusions. Also, consider correspondence between parties. As lawyers will be saying, if you do an internal risk review, consider whether it should attract privilege. It may not have prevented it coming to court, but it might have delayed things. Over to you, Andrew. And uh, just a couple of extra things. I think, I think one of the other lessons learned is I think a lesson maybe the IT industry has already learned throughout this one, this, because this was obviously all happening around the change at the end of century 2000, still quite a, a young industry, really. Uh, and actually, I wonder, in this size procurement, in most organisations sat in the room, whether the sort of things that got away with would still be able to get away with. I, I pose the question, really, more than anything. I think the other lesson learned for lawyers is there's some good bits of drafting tips which we can take away, actually things which have been shown to work and not work that we can look at and think about within our contracts. Um, and I think really the last thing is, generally, although we only had a chance to brush over it, being, you know, bidding in a procurement process in relation where you've got lots of different entities involved is generally still not something to be too worried about, provided you do a couple of very sensible things within your contractual documents.